Hey, good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Need an extra table this morning? Um, good to see you. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. So if you're new, I've seen a few new folks. Um, just would love to meet you uh, in the lobby afterwards today. I'm just really glad that you're here. Excited to jump into God's word with you. I've got one question that I'm trying to answer for us this morning. And that's this. You know, in this book, there's a passage that we're going to read in just a few minutes in 2 Timothy verse chapters 3 and 4. We read it two weeks ago together. And it says that there are these sacred writings. And these sacred writings are able to make you wise unto salvation, meaning let you know what you need to know to be saved. That these sacred writings are able to train you in righteousness and teach and instruct. So here's my question for this morning. Is this, the 66 books of the Bible and the histories in here, the poems in here, the narratives in here, the letters in here, is this, is this the sacred writings? Is that what is able to make us wise unto salvation? Is this something that we can trust? As you know, uh, several weeks ago, we started a sermon series called Formed. It's a 10-week discipleship journey where we're really asking the question, what does it look like for Christ-like character to be formed in us? And we said the foundation of Christ-like character is God's grace, his intervening grace in our lives, the reality that God has intervened in our lives when we did not deserve it. We had sinned against him, and he came after us. And that reality alone begins to form in us what Galatians 5 would call the fruits of the Spirit. That that reality alone begins to form character in us. It, it makes us people who are gentle and patient and kind. I know those words aren't always the words that are used to describe the church, but it's what the Bible says should be formed inside of followers of Jesus and we said one of the reasons why God forms his character in us is because he calls us to represent him to the world together. That, that as we love one another and as we love our neighbors with gentleness and patience and kindness, as we share about the hope that is within us, that the world would see that there is a God and that he sent his son Jesus to save the world. But as we saw two weeks ago, we need an anchor we need something that is going to tell us what is true. Something that is going to tell us who God is, who we are, how we relate to God. All of these things that we're saying, how he's forming character in us. We need some sort of anchor. And that's why we went to 2 Timothy 3 and 4 to figure out what that anchor is. I want to read that passage for us one more time. This will be our text again for this morning because... It's important that we understand what the Bible says about itself. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a pastor that he's training. It says, You, however, have followed my teaching. You, Timothy, you followed my teaching, Paul's teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You've seen my character. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. 
which persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with, here it is, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Keep going to chapter 4 just a little bit longer. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Timothy, if you're going to be a faithful pastor, preach the word, the scriptures. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What we learned two weeks ago is that that anchor that tells us what is true is the scriptures. They teach us about God's grace. They train us in righteousness. We also learned that we will be persecuted for following and believing the scriptures and that we ourselves will face temptation to reject the scriptures, to find teachers who will teach something different, to bend the scriptures to our own wisdom, our own understanding, the things that we want the scriptures to say. And yet we are called, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand, even when maybe we disagree with the scriptures themselves, we are called to trust in them, to hold fast to the scriptures, to do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, which was to go to God and say, God, I don't trust what you have to say. I actually think there's a better way. And I'm going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to trust in my own wisdom rather than trust in you. So this morning, here's what I want to do, though. I want to ask the question. If, if the scriptures are that important, if this is our anchor if this is what we need to hold fast to in the face of persecution and suffering, even when it's hard, if this is what we need to look to to correct and instruct us, then is this book that I'm holding, the 66 books of the Bible, those scriptures? Is what I have in this book, these words, these English words, reflective of the scriptures that we are talking about right here 
this morning. And so what I want to do, I told you I was going to do this a couple weeks ago, is I want to take this morning to equip you in this and ask some questions of the Bible. How do we get the Bible? How do we know this is reliable? Who decided what books would be included in this and what books would not be included in this? So two questions I'm going to ask this morning, okay? And that's this. Number one, how do we know that this is an accurate reflection of the original works? And number two, who decided what gets to go in here and what does not go in this book? I'm sure if you Google that question, you'll get a lot of different opinions. Let me start here. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, says this. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So one of the things the Bible says about itself is that the way the scriptures were written was God-inspired people, humans, to write things. And what we have in the Bible is all kinds of different things, histories and narratives and stories and prophecies and poems and all of these things. And God used people, humans, in their personalities, in their writing styles, in their unique lived experiences and stories to write things. And God in his wisdom orchestrated all of that together into what we call the scriptures. God didn't just download the entire contents of the Bible into one guy sitting in a cave, and he comes out and he's like, hey, this is what God's word said, and we're all supposed to trust the story of that one guy. That's not what happened. That's not how we got the scriptures. It wasn't like a book descended from heaven and an angel came out of heaven and it was really bright and airy and there was, you know, choruses singing and a book was delivered to us and we're supposed to believe that legend. That's not how we got the Bible. No, the Bible is the product of God divinely inspiring dozens of authors over a thousand years, over across a huge geographical area, using several different genres to produce a cohesive story that's all about Jesus. That's the Bible. And frankly, I find that to be way more compelling than believing some legend that some guy went into a cave and got it all from God or, you know, a book descended from heaven. I find it way more compelling that God used people over centuries to write these scriptures. The Bible doesn't hinge on one divine event or legend, but on evidence that's been accumulated over time for multiple people in multiple places. Evidence that we can look at and examine ourselves. So let's get to our two questions. All right, here's the deal. I'm getting into lecture mode today, and that's not my lane, right? Like, lecture mode is not my gift. So just roll with me on this. I have no idea if this will be short or long, but I've got I've to watch. So we'll, we'll just go until it's time to be done. Two questions I have. First one is this. How do we know that the books that we have in the Bible are accurate reflections of the original 
books. Now we're gonna have to talk about the Old Testament first and then the New Testament, all right? Because the last book we have in the Old Testament was written around 500 BC. So that's a very, very long time ago. And then the books of the New Testament were written in the first century AD. So just huge distance of time between Old and New Testaments. So let's start with the Old first. The oldest manuscript, all right? I need everyone, I, mean, I, need, I need all of us to think through this. The oldest manuscripts we have of the Old Testament are from around 250 BC to 130. So obviously we don't have the originals. We, we don't have the actual tablets or parchment or papyrus or scrolls that the authors of the Old Testament wrote on. We have copies of them. And so the question is, are those copies legit? Can we trust that? I mean, we know from Scripture and we know from other sources that the Jews had a really tedious practice of copying manuscripts of the Old Testament and passing those along. Every king over Israel was commanded by God in the Scriptures to copy their own copy of the law, to have scribes do that for them, and these copies would be kept in the temple. And it was tedious. They would have to copy word for word by hand. Printing press isn't until like, what, 15th century, 14th century AD. And so they're copying by hand, and if they messed up one letter, they had to throw it all out and start again. All right, and so we know there is a rich history of copying, but this seems really ripe for a conspiracy theory, right? So you've got people copying and copying and copying and copying, and of course, someone could say, okay, well, I could change a few things. Maybe there was a king who had some political agendas, and man, it'd be really helpful if the scriptures agreed with his political agenda, right? And so who's to say he didn't pay a scribe or cover some stuff up or destroy older copies? How do we know that this was a reliable tradition to copy these manuscripts over and over and over again? Kind of like an ancient historical game of telephone, right? Where you'd copy, copy, and then the next guy would change a little bit, and the next guy would change a little bit, and it just kind of goes on and on and on. Well, how do we know that's what we have today is not a product of that? And this is where the discipline of textual criticism comes in. And there's a lot of Christians out there who don't like this idea of textual criticism because they don't think and they hear the word criticism and it makes them feel weird. All textual criticism is, is we're going to look at the manuscripts that we've dug out of the ground and we're going to criticize them. Do these seem to be legitimate or not? It's actually something that is a good friend to our faith, all right? The, the Bible is not threatened by science or archaeology or history or anything we dig out of the ground. It's actually our friend. And so the practice of textual criticism is this idea of taking all of the stuff we've dug out of the ground, comparing them to one another to see if changes were made, to see if there's any discrepancy, so prior to 1947, the earliest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament in Hebrew were from the 9th and 10th century A.D., right? That's a long time between when they were written and the manuscripts that we have, like over a thousand years, all right? So of course, 
Lots of questions could arise of there's a lot that can happen in a thousand years between the original and the copies that we have. That particular text that we have in the 9th and 10th century AD is called the Masoretic Text, if you're interested. It's, uh, based the, it's the Hebrew manuscripts that your Bibles are based upon today in the Bibles that you hold. It's called the Masoretic Text. But it's from the 9th, 10th century AD uh, until 1947. A bunch of kids were playing in some caves around the Dead Sea, throwing rocks. One kid threw a rock, and they didn't hear the impact of it because it went into a cave. And they were like, oh, what's in this cave? So they went, and they locked in this cave, and they found all kinds of pottery with scrolls on it. So they run back and start telling people, and what this became was the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the greatest discoveries that has helped us in understanding the original of our Bible. The Dead Sea Scrolls contained manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts, from every Old Testament book with the exception of Esther. And the date of these scrolls was 250 B.C., to 130 AD. So we're talking a thousand years earlier than the earliest manuscripts we had before in the Masoretic text. So this is perfect. This is where textual criticism comes in, right? We can now go, great, let's compare the Masoretic text to the Dead Sea Scroll and let's see the differences, right? Let's see if changes were made. This is perfect. This is going to help us understand What's going on? So what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls as they compared them? Well, let me quote Justin Rogers, a Hebrew scholar. He says, There are relatively few examples of passages that are totally different in the Dead Sea Scrolls than they appear in the medieval Hebrew manuscripts. That's the Masoretic text. And the majority of the passages that are different match some other known version of the Old Testament, usually the Greek translation. That's the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament from about the 3rd century B.C. This means that the Old Testament has been copied and transmitted with remarkable accuracy. It is not a stretch to say the Hebrew Bible known to Jesus is essentially the same as the one known to us. All of this leads to the conclusion that the Dead Sea Scrolls sometimes complicate, but generally confirm our knowledge of the Old Testament text. Did the Dead Sea Scrolls, were they a perfect match to the Masoretic text? Nope, they weren't. But they were remarkably similar. And this is the amazing thing about textual criticism. Is we, we don't have to hide from it. We can be transparent. So we did see discrepancies between the two. They weren't major ones. They were minor ones. I'll give you an example. And you can see this in your own Bible. So 1 Samuel 17, 4. I'll read this up here. All right. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath. You know the story. Of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Right, it's about nine and a half feet. All right, so, I mean, that's, that's a tall guy. Um, now, interesting, if you have an ESV Bible, if you have a CSB Bible, an NIV Bible, you're probably going to see a little footnote next to the word six. All right, go to my next. So the ESV footnote is going to say this. You can look at it if you have an ESV. It's going to say Hebrew. Now, sometimes footnotes are notoriously hard to read and confusing. All right, so Hebrew 
semicolon. So that Hebrew there is talking about the Masoretic text. So what that's saying is it's a Masoretic text from the 9th century, 10th century AD says six cubits in a span. All right? But, semicolon, then it says Septuagint, Greek translation from 3rd century BC, Dead Sea Scroll, and Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian from the 1st century AD, four. So the Masoretic text says six cubits in a span, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and Josephus all said four cubits in a span, six and a half feet. The Goliath was six and a half feet tall. Now that's a little more believable, right? That's still a big boy, all right? Six and a half feet. And if he was big and he carried that sword strong, like I'd still be scared of him. It does nothing to change how I view this text. But this is a discrepancy. And your Bible is going to tell you that there is a discrepancy here. We're not going to hide it. We don't have scholars going, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do? Is it four? Is it six? Everyone's going to reject the Bible over this one thing. Then let's make something up. Let's hide the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls say something different. Listen, no one can get away with that. The Bible is too widely studied and known. These manuscripts are too widely available to too many people. No one can accomplish a conspiracy here. So there's going to be transparency. Here it is. There's a discrepancy right here in the text. And this is why I find textual criticism to be so helpful. Because it's helping us get down to the original. The minor imperfections along with the remarkable preservation of the text prove to us that God's people have been successful at preserving this word. It's not some unrealistic legend or polished fable we have to believe. It's God working through humans as he said he was going to do. Okay, that's the Old Testament. I think I'm doing pretty good. All right, New Testament. This is much shorter. The reason why this is much shorter is because the New Testament was written much later, obviously, first century AD. And so the manuscript evidence we have is overwhelming. All right, so obviously the, the, to find manuscripts of old Hebrew, that's gonna, that's, it's much older. It's much more difficult to find, not with the New Testament. The New Testament is the single most attested ancient document we have of stuff we've dug out of the ground, right? The second uh, most uh, manuscript of a literary work that we have of the most manuscripts we've dug out of the ground is Homer's Iliad. And we've dug out of the ground 642 manuscripts of that work. That's the second most to the New Testament. When it comes to the New Testament, we have dug out of the ground 5,686 Greek manuscripts. That's 5,686 manuscripts we can compare to each other to figure out what the best text should be. And if you add in other languages, that's just Greek. If you add in other languages like Syriac and others, then we have over 25,000 manuscripts to compare. So I brought my Greek New Testament with me. I, you know... This thing sits on my shelf a lot because I have Bible software that helps me with this stuff. But anyway, in a Greek New Testament, just like this, I know you can't see it. That's okay. Listen, what you're going to have is about half this page is going to be the actual Greek text. The other half of this page is what we call the apparatus. It's all the manuscripts and all of the differences and discrepancies. 
Oh, the, the, this one puts a comma here, and that one puts a comma there, and this one, the word was spelled this way, and that manuscript, the word was spelled that way. Complete transparency. Every scholar has availability to this, and the Bibles that you hold today are scholarship's work of bringing the manuscriptal evidence together to what we are confident is a reliable copy of the originals in both the Old and New Testament. In other words, you can trust that what you're reading today is an accurate reflection of the original works for the Bible. And your English translations are good translations. Whether it's ESV or NIV or NASB or NRSV or CSB or NLT, you know, all of, like, they're good translations. You can trust them. There's a lot of people who fight over Bible translations. You don't need to do that. All right? I like ESV. That's not because, I don't know, it's just what I have, okay? And so if you like NIV, if you like uh, uh, New American Standard, that's great. Some of them are a little easier to read, but they're all based off the same manuscript evidence. You can trust the Bible in your hand. All right, second question I have is this. Who then decided which book should go into the Bible? We have what we called a closed canon, Closed canon. What that means, canon, basically means authoritative writings. Authoritative writings. And what we have is what is called a closed canon, meaning we're not going to add or take away from this, that we believe our canon is closed, that no other authoritative writings will get included in this. Well, then who decided that? The question that we're asking is what books went in here? Who decided that? So here's the thing. There are some people who think, like if you read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or other things, there are some people who believe that this is a conspiracy. That sometime around the 4th century that, you know, Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea or others, and they all came together, and there's all of these works floating around, Old Testament, New Testament, ancient, works about Jesus, and there's all this stuff, and this council kind of convened a Bible that would fit their political and economic interests. And nothing could be further from the truth because of the evidence that we have against that claim. So again, let's start with the Old Testament. How was this compiled? Jesus refers to the law, the prophets, and the writings of Moses throughout the Gospels. And so what we know is that in the first century, not only from Jesus, but other works, that there was a Jewish canon, that the Jewish people had scriptures, and they had already decided what scriptures were going to be a part of their closed canon. So in the first century, Josephus, you've already heard that name, was a Jewish historian, all right? He listed out what those books of the canon would be. He had a list of 22 books in the Jewish canon. And this actually matches our 39-book Old Testament. I'll put them up here. This is the 22 books of the Jewish canon. So you had, this is all the books that are in your Old Testament right now. You just have some that are combined together. First and Second Samuel was one book. First and Second Kings was one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Jeremiah and Lamentations were one book. And then the 12 minor prophets Um, the 12 prophets at the end of your Old Testament were one book. So this all comes together into one Jewish canon. 
And so as Christianity began to emerge, all right, the church is starting, there was debate. What books should we as Christians recognize? Because there were other ancient works as well that were circulating around, and these are books that would eventually become known as the Apocrypha. So, if you grew up in the Catholic Church or you're familiar with the Catholic Church at all, you know they have some books in their Old Testament that we as Protestants do not have. This is called the Apocrypha. And basically, the Apocrypha in the early, early church, so we're talking first, second century, these works were considered helpful, useful, edificatory, but they were not considered canon. They were not included in the Jewish canon, the Jewish scriptures. And so there's a debate. What do we do with these books? And so the debate kind of raged through the centuries. And in the 16th century, during the Reformation, they, uh, we had this, uh, there's a council called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation. So you had Martin Luther and John Calvin and these guys running around challenging church doctrine. The Council of Trent was the Catholic Church's response. And in the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church made a canon for their Old Testament that included the Apocrypha. All right, so I'll put this list up here. These are all the books of the Apocrypha. The Orthodox Bible actually has more included. So the ones with the asterisks are included in the Orthodox Bible. The one without the asterisks are included in the Catholic Bible. And so these are the Apocrypha. Now, what are they? They're tech, there's some history text for the intertestamental period. So between, there's about 400 years between your Old and New Testament. There's some history from that. There's some wisdom books. There's some apocalyptic books in there. Largely that the church found to be useful, but not canon. Right? We read books all the time from people who we find to be useful, but we don't insert them into our Bible and say that they're authoritative. And so the early, early, early church recognized the Jewish canon as authoritative, but it wasn't until the Council of Trent in the 16th century that the Catholic church decided to include these apart, or as a part of their canon. And the Protestant church did not follow suit. The Protestant church said, we're going to maintain the Jewish canon as our Old Testament, and we're not going to include these books. In responding to the Council of Trent, John Calvin said, In forming a catalog of scripture, the Roman Catholic Church marks all the books with the same chalk and insists on placing the Apocrypha in the same rank with the others against the consent of the primitive church. And what he means by that is against the consent of the early, early church. We're talking the church fathers. These are the guys that were the disciples of the disciples. Okay, so that early, early church, they recognized the Jewish canon as scripture, but not these other texts. So that's why, as Protestants, we do not recognize the same uh, books in the Apocrypha as canon. Now, concerning the New Testament, we're almost done, guys. We're almost there. All right, hang with me. Concerning the New Testament, it was largely agreed upon by the whole church by about 367 A.D. what should be included in the New Testament. That's everybody, right? Protestants, you know, there wasn't any schism yet in 367, but everyone kind of recognized the New Testament canon. Um, like the Old Testament, there were 
all kinds of works circulating around, different gospels, like 80 different gospels circulating around. And so, of course, there needed to be a task to figure out, well, what gospels should we include? Uh, why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why just those four and not some of the others? What, what letters should we include in our Bibles? Again, there's lots of conspiracy out there to think that, well, these, the Gospels that we have were included in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea for political reasons. But the problem with that is the evidence we have from the church fathers is that the four Gospels we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were recognized as canon authoritative well before that in the 1st and 2nd century. You had Irenaeus from Turkey recognized the fourth gospel, four Gospels in the second century. Clement of Alexandria from Greece recognized the fourth Gospels in the second century. Tertullian from Africa recognized the four Gospels in the second century. And Origen from Egypt. So these are guys, they're in different parts of the planet. They're leading the church. And they considered the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as canon, authoritative, and not these other Gospel works. So this wasn't a concerted effort. It wasn't as if, you know, uh, uh, a bunch of people got in a room and said, okay, here's what we're going to say the canon's going to be. No, the canon formed over time as people received these works and together decided what should be authoritative over time. We don't see this conspiratorial council put together to finalize everything. It was in 367 when Athanasius put a list together of New Testament and all he was doing was confirming this is what the church historically recognizes as canon, both Old and New Testament. All right, I have to stop because I'm tired of this. But let me say this, and I can only fit so much. I just gave you the cliff notes. So if you're interested in, in digging into this, this is a big topic for you and you really want to understand. Two books I just want to recommend to you. One, Scribes in Scripture. This is by John Mead and Peter Gurry. Just a great book on the story of the formation of the Bible. So if you want to read about all the stuff about copying these texts and also how the canon was formed, this is a great read. And then if you want to dig more into the four Gospels we have, I recommend to you Peter Williams' Can We Trust the Gospels? Both of these great books if you want to dig into this just a little more. But let me, let me pivot us here for just a few minutes. The questions that we asked this morning, they're good questions, right? It's, it's good to dig into the history. It's good to ask questions of the Bible. It's good to want to understand how these things were formed, all right? This is not skepticism. This is wanting to be informed about the Scriptures. But... If you're struggling to trust in the Bible and to trust in the scriptures, I, I don't think me giving you an airtight historical, archaeological argument is going to answer all your questions. I don't think it's, that is going to be the thing that's going to ignite your faith. I don't think the technical details of the Bible alone are going to help you to have this posture of submission to the Bible. This posture of looking to it as authority. Looking to it as the thing that tells me what is true. Oftentimes, I think we need to do some self-reflection. Oftentimes, not always, 
but our skepticism of the Bible might actually be subtle permission that we give ourselves to lean on our own understanding instead of putting our trust in the Scripture. Again, I'm not saying it's bad to to ask these questions of the Bible. We should ask these questions of the Bible. But I do think we need to evaluate our hearts. Is this subtle permission for me to be able to believe and do what I want to believe and what I want to do? Just like Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden. Just like 2 Timothy 4 warned us that, hey, there's going to be a a time where where people are going to want to to reject this scripture. They're going to want teachers who are going to teach something different. That we're all going to feel a temptation to walk away, to amend, to bend the scriptures because there's going to be external pressures on us and maybe even internal pressure inside. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshing to your bones. You know, several weeks ago, I was meeting with the therapist that I see. And uh, we were talking about a completely different topic. But we were talking about the idea of doubt. And he looked at me and he said, Alan, there's no such thing as doubt. There's only trust. And I kind of looked back at him. I argue with him a lot. I looked back at him and I was like, I, I don't understand. He says, when we doubt anything, it's basically what we're doing is we're stating our trust in something else. And sometimes that's good. I'm not saying that's always a bad thing. But just this idea of when I say I doubt this, it's really a statement of I trust that instead. Or I trust what's going on inside of me instead. And I think sometimes when we doubt the scriptures, the question we need to ask is what do I trust? And we need to ask, you know, what is my posture towards the Bible? Is it that I lean on my own understanding? And my own understanding becomes the the test, the rubric, the litmus test that the Bible must pass for me to be able to submit to it and to do what it says and to trust what it says. Am I wise in my own eyes that the way I see the world and the way that I think about morality and the way that I think about what is true, right, beautiful, and good, is that more authoritative, reliable than the scriptures itself? The Bible claims that all of this, right, is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for teaching and instruction to to make us wise unto salvation. And if we find ourselves doubting it, the question I think we should ask is, well, then what do I trust in? And my encouragement to you, if you find yourself skeptical of the Bible, is to test it. 
Cast yourself upon it. Read it. Sit in it. Do what it says. Read it with other people. Wrestle with it with other people. Let other people instruct you. Let other people encourage you in it. Practice having a posture of sitting under versus standing over. And see, over time, if what it says is true. And see if it's healing to your flesh and refreshing to your bones. Because I think that world history has taught us. I think for many of us, our own stories have taught us. I know when I think about my life, my own story has taught me that it doesn't go well when I lean on my own understanding. And that it doesn't go well when I see myself as wise in my own eyes. But that's not refreshing to my bones. That's not healing to my flesh. But it actually brings a lot of brokenness. It breaks relationships when I think I'm wise in my own eyes. I, I don't get led into doing things that serve my soul. I actually get led into doing things that drain my soul when I lean on my own understanding. But when I allow myself to be instructed by this, when I allow other people who submit to this instruct me, when I allow myself to do what Isaiah 66.2 says, is, which is to, to have a humble spirit and a contrite heart and to tremble at the word of God, when I allow myself to be in that posture, the word of God proves itself to be good and true and right and healing and refreshing. So test it. Cast yourself upon it. Read it. Do what it says. And I believe we can trust it. This, the scriptures, the sacred writings. So here's my encouragement to you as we walk away from this place this morning. My encouragement is, again, I, I provided for you in your bulletins some reflection questions. And, and I really hope as we walk through this 10-week series that we are using these. And I encourage you to grab this and sit down with another person and, and work through the questions. Open up your Bible. Answer honestly. Wrestle with one another as we ask these questions. Because this, Grace Hill, is our anchor we don't know what to do without this. And at Grace Hill Church, just like we were commanded to do in 2 Timothy 4, we will preach this. As Melody already said to us this morning, we will sing this. We will encourage each other with this. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. And God, we're thankful that you used human authors to write it people that we can understand, people who struggled with some of the same things that we did, things that we can relate to. And God, I, I pray for all of us as a church that we would have an unwavering trust in the scriptures. Help us, God, to cast ourselves upon it. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would fulfill your promise in Proverbs 3.8. That when we trust in your word, 
We don't lean on our own understanding. We don't see ourselves as wise in our own eyes. That the word of God will be refreshing to our bones and healing to our flesh. And God, just to make that statement practical, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now who's in deep grief and anger towards you, that they would open up the Bible to places like Lamentations 3 and Psalm 73, and they'll find out that you can handle their anger and their sorrow. And that in it, there's healing. And that you would meet them. And in that place, as they cast themselves upon your word, that there would be healing. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who's doubting, who questions if you exist. Lord, I pray that they would find the places in the scripture where your people over and over doubted you. They're not alone in their doubt. And that, Lord, in that place, your spirit would meet them and build their faith. And God, I pray it would be healing to their flesh, refreshing to their bones. God, I pray if there's anyone who's just racked with guilt this morning from things that they have done, mistakes they've made, relationships they have broken, God, I pray that they would open up the scriptures and they would find that you are a forgiving, merciful, gracious God. And that you sent your son Jesus to die in their place so they could be redeemed. And God, not just so that they could be forgiven, but, but Lord, so that, that you could begin to transform and change their lives and bring joy to their life wholeness, righteousness. God, I pray it'd be healing to their flesh and refreshing to their bones. God, if anyone is stressed, anxious, fearful of what's gonna happen tomorrow, God, I pray you would take them to the places in scriptures where your people struggled with that all the time. They're not alone. And I pray that they would find a God who is with them. A God who's sovereign. A God who has promised them eternal life in his kingdom. And Lord, you would bring healing to their flesh and refreshment to their bones. Lord, we could keep going. But God, as a church, help us to cast ourselves upon your word. Because it's there where you meet us. And it's there that you restore our souls. And it's there that you heal our wounds. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.